Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Chapel Messages podcast, a ministry of Emmaus Bible College. Each episode is taken from a chapel message given here at Emmaus. For more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. Good morning. I hope that in glory, uh, as, as the eternal ages unfold, that there will be much reading of Scripture. And I hope that oftentimes it's done with a Tennessee accent. Because I could listen to that accent reading scripture all day long. Beautiful. Thank you to the musicians both today as well as Wednesday. You guys are extremely talented. Uh, I wish I could put you in my pocket and bring you home with me uh, to my church. Uh, you're, you're very good, and, and thank you for leading us uh, in the worship of our Lord. Will you pray with me? Our good and great God, we come before you, Lord, now to ask for your help as we consider your word, as we consider David's uh, poem here in Psalm 141. Uh, our hearts are desperately wicked, Lord. Uh, our minds are de- depraved by sin, and they are not able to fully comprehend uh, the greatness of the truth which you've given to us in your scripture. And so we ask for the help of your spirit who knows the mind of God, uh, who is infinite himself and, and is omniscient and is omnipresent and is with each of us today who know your son as our savior. We ask for his help in understanding and in applying the words of this psalm, of this prayer, written so many years ago, but so applicable to us today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. On Wednesday, we introduced Psalm 141, recognizing that this is a psalm of David, and that it is a prayer. Every aspect of this psalm is a prayer. It is the prayer of David's heart before God. Uh, In many ways, it is reflective of our Lord Jesus' prayer, which he taught to his disciples on the Sermon on the Mount. And from both of these prayers, we can get a model, if you will, of what it is to pray. And it's important for us to study the prayers of Scripture and Old Testament and New Testament alike, because as we do so, they kindle within us or they fan into flame again a passion and a desire to commune with our God to be intimate with him. And as we read the prayers, whether it be of the psalmist or of the prophets or of the Lord Jesus himself or of the apostles, we get a glimpse of their passion for God and how deeply and and, and how, how, how personal their conversations are with God. And so my prayer has been Uh, for both of these times that we've spent together, that this time in Psalm 141 will impassion you again, perhaps, if if, if possibly the flame of the desire to talk with our Lord may have have dwindled a bit. Or or if it has not, that it would be fanned into even more life and even into more of a burning heat and, and that your desire to be with God and to speak with Him and to receive from Him His presence and His goodness uh, will be yours. Uh, Just as a quick review to remind us of where we've been so that we know where where we are, and then we can go on to where we need to be. Uh, In the first two verses, uh, David has asked his Lord for help. And he's, he's asked the Lord, he's implored the Lord to run to me, come to me, Oh, God, uh, turn your ear to me, incline your ear to me, listen to me. I need to talk with you. I need 
your presence and I need to speak with you. And so he, he calls for the Lord to come into his presence. Then in verses 3 and 4, he asks the Lord for wisdom. Wisdom in his life. Specifically wisdom with the words that are going to come out of his mouth. Guard my lips, he says. Uh, make sure that the things that come out of my mouth are not destructive, that they are not unrighteous, that they are not wicked, but may the things that come out of my mouth praise you and glorify you and encourage and exhort your people. Guard my lips. And we looked at what James had to say in James chapter 3 in his uh, words on the tongue. Uh, he also says, give me wisdom in my heart. He knows, as the, as the prophet says, the heart is desperately wicked and so he asks the Lord, don't incline my heart to any evil thing. And he's echoing what Jesus will say in his model prayer for his disciples. Do not lead me into temptation, but deliver me from evil. He asks for wisdom in his actions as well. I don't want to practice deeds of wickedness, God. So give me wisdom. Give me the ability to live my life, the things that I do may they be reflective of my relationship with you and of the holiness that is true of you and that I desire in my own life. And then finally, he asked for wisdom with his companions. And that's where we're going to pick up uh, for ourselves as well. He asked for wisdom uh, with his companions, and specifically in verse 5, he asked the Lord for good friends. Let the righteous smite me in kindness and reprove me. It is oil upon the head. Do not let my head refuse it, is his prayer. There are three things that you should know about good friends. Number one, they are very few in number. They are very few in number. True, good friends who are committed to loving you and to walking through this life with you as a companion and as a friend are few and far between. So that's the first thing to know about friends. Number two, the second thing to know about friends is that they, good friends, are valuable beyond words. They are worth more than all the gold and all the silver uh, and all the bitcoins. I still don't even know what a bitcoin is. <laughs> all I know is I don't have any. But good friends are more valuable than, than the riches that this world has to offer. And their value is found partly in how rare they are. How rare it is to have a good friend. And when you do have a good friend, recognize the tremendous value there. So, good friends are few in number. Good friends are valuable beyond words. And third, good friends are essential to a consistent walk with God over a lifetime. Good friends are essential to a consistent walk with God over a lifetime. We see this illustrated time and time again in the Word of God. Uh, our Lord Jesus himself recognized the necessity of having good friends. And so he chose uh, his disciples. And from his disciples, he chose a smaller group of men who would become his closest confidants 
and his closest companions, those who he would share uh, the most intimate moments of his earthly life. Uh, and, and so they, they, they are so important that we have good friends. One reality about friends is that they are going to influence you. They are going to have an influence upon you. There's no debate upon that. There's no question about it. That can be a good influence, or it can be a bad influence. Uh, but if we choose our friends carefully, and if we choose our friends wisely, then what David says that we can receive from them is that, hesed, or that, that Hebrew word that's used so often by the psalmist, hesed. Loving kindness, a loving kindness that is found in God. It's reflected in the Greek term agape, a, a, a love that is, seeks the best for the object that is loved. It's a sacrificial love, a love that gives of itself for the benefit of the object that is loved. And of course, that is the love that God has for us. And it's the love that the Lord Jesus Christ demonstrated for us when he gave his own life that we might have eternal life. But David says here that, that the righteous, that is, his, his request is, let my righteous friends smite me in kindness. Now, when was the last time that you prayed, God, give me a friend who will smite me? What, and specifically, what David is praying for is that this smiting comes in the form of correction. It comes in the form of correction. You see, David has God's perspective here. He recognizes that friends are few. He recognizes that they are valuable. He recognizes the necessity of good, godly Christian friends to his walk with God himself. And so he takes that knowledge and he applies it in his prayer to God and he requests of God, God, give me a friend who loves me so much that they'll tell me when I'm wrong. That they'll have the courage to tell me, Sean, you're wrong. What you're doing is wrong. And it needs to change. You need to repent. You need to confess it. What a brave thing to ask of God. Because if you ask this of God, I guarantee you he's going to give you this friend. But it is a brave thing to ask. And let me say this. This is not the kind of prayer we generally ask of God in the moment when we most need a friend to correct us. At that moment, we don't want to hear anything about what we're doing is wrong. This is a prayer that we are to be asking continually before the need for correction arises so that we have this established relationship, this established friendship that the Lord has brought into our life of a friend who loves us so much that they will not allow us to continue to go down a path of destruction, but they will step in, and in the image of Nathan the prophet, they will point the finger at us in love and in grace and in gentleness and say, you you are the man. 
David experienced this very type of friendship, did he not? I've often wondered what might have happened had David had a friend with him that fateful night on the roof of his palace when he looked out and his eyes fell upon Bathsheba. He didn't have faithful friends in his servants because they obeyed him and went right ahead over to her place and got her for him. But what might have happened? Now we can only bring conjecture to it. What might have happened if a faithful friend had said bravely and in love, David, my king, don't do this. This is wrong. David asks, let me receive this rebuke. It is a oil upon my head. That is, it is, it is soothing to me. It is an honor to have a friend who loves so deeply that they will risk that friendship in order to call me back to God's path for me. So David here asks for good friends. In verses 5 through 7, he asks the Lord for vindication. A common theme in the Psalms. Let the righteous smite, uh, excuse me, uh, for still my prayer is against their wicked deeds. Their judges are thrown down by the sides of the rock, and they hear my words, for they are present as when one plows and breaks open the earth. One, our bones have been scattered at the mouth of Sheol. And once again, here we encounter what has been come to be called an imprecatory psalm. Imprecatory, a calling down of judgment upon the wicked. We find this oftentimes in the Psalms, and this is a rather gentle one in comparison to some of them. But here the, the psalmist prays in very strong language for God to judge his enemies. Ultimately, because of their evil, because of the evil which they are pursuing against David, they are pursuing against God himself. And so he calls for God to scatter their bones so they do not even receive a decent burial. Now when we read this, and I'm not going to linger long here, but when we read these imprecatory portions of the Psalms, it's a challenge to us as New Testament Christians, isn't it? Uh, the ethic here seems very different from the New Testament ethic, which is taught to us by the Lord Jesus, who said, uh, pray for those who persecute you, pray and do not curse. Uh, or the Apostle Paul, who in 2 Timothy chapter 3 uh, told Timothy, with gentleness, correct those who are in the path of, wicked, of wickedness. Understanding that they are encaptured by the devil and ensnared by him and are doing his deeds unbeknownst to themselves. So speak gently, correct them, if perhaps in his grace God might lead them to repentance. And so this is the New Testament ethic, but here in the Old Testament, the psalmist says, dash their babies' heads against a rock. And we have struggle with that, don't we? Well, I'm going to have to leave it to your uh, 
theology and Old Testament and New Testament professors to fully unpack for you how to handle this interpretively. But keep this simply in mind. The psalmist is writing from a perspective of a theocratic kingdom of God, the nation of Israel, the people of God who are to be the, this, this shining light upon the earth amongst the nations. And they are, the, the presence of God is to be there in their midst. And the idea of the, of the, the presence of wickedness associated with that presence of glory is an anathema to the very idea of the kingdom of God. And it is from this theological mindset that the psalmist is writing these imprecatory statements. Today in the New Testament, we of the church are wait for that kingdom in its fullness and in its glory when the Lord Jesus shall come here and he shall judge and he shall bring out the fulfillment of these imprecatory words that we read in the psalmist. For, for our time now, our command is to love our neighbor as ourselves. To recognize that our enemies are not flesh and blood. But they are the invisible powers of the devil who is working in the background and to whom they are enslaved without knowing. And so... In, the, in obedience to our Lord, we pray for those who persecute us. But we do so with an eye toward the future coming kingdom when the Lord will vindicate his people and he will vindicate his glory. And that sense of vindication is what we find embedded in these imprecatory statements of the Psalms. It is the prayer of the righteous looking ahead to the glory and the final unveiling of the holiness of God. When every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord of Lord and King of Kings. The final request that David makes is in verses 8 through 10, and he asks the Lord here for protection. For my eyes are toward you, O Lord, the, O God the Lord, in you I take refuge. Do not leave me defenseless. Keep me from the jaws of the trap which they have set for me and from the snares of those who do iniquity. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. David's prayer, Lord, may your eyes be upon me. May your eyes be upon me that's what he says in verse 1. And here at verse 8, he says, May my eyes be focused on you. May my eyes continually be focused on my King, Yahweh, his Lord, the sovereign Lord. The Apostle Paul states something very similar in Colossians chapter 3 when he encourages the Christians in that city to do the following. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. But in the time being, 
you who have been raised up with Christ, you who know the Lord your God as Savior, keep your eyes on heaven as you walk here on earth. Keep a heavenly perspective. In Pilgrim's Progress, Bunyan's great allegory, uh, there's a scene where Christian is walking along and he comes to a dark path and on either side of that path is a lion. And it's dark and he can't tell that the lions are chained. They're bound, they're, they're tied up, they can't, they can't, uh, they don't have free reign whatsoever. But he sees these lions standing in his path and he's terrified as one would be. How am I going to get past these lions? And the porter, the, the, the guide that he has there, says, that, says something along the lines of him to this. Don't be afraid. The lions are here to test your faith. But they are bound. Keep to the center of the path. And you'll be okay. You'll be safe. And so Bunyan tells us that, that Christian keeps his eyes on the porter and he believes him, and he trusts him, and he walks in the middle of the path, and the lions, which are bound, cannot reach him, and he arrives safely on the other side. And I think Bunyan there has captured what David is praying for here. Keep me from the jaws of the traps that the wicked have set for me. Guide my feet, guide my steps, guide my path so that I do not waver off to one side or the other within the reach of these ravenous lions who are bent on destroying me and devouring me. Guide me safely through this world which is so full of these traps and these snares. It's the prayer, or it's the wisdom of Solomon in Proverbs 3. Five and six. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. When you see the lions there, trust in the Lord. Don't lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways, say it with me, acknowledge him and he will what? He will make your paths straight. That's what David is praying for here. That's precisely what David is praying for here. I want to acknowledge you, Lord. I want you to come to me. I want you to guard my mouth. I want you to bring me good friends who love me so much they'll tell me when I'm being a knucklehead. I want you to bring glory to yourself and vindicate me and vindicate yourself. But in the meantime, guide me. Direct my path. Be ever in my vision so that I can focus upon you and follow you. One day, Psalm 8 tells us that Jesus is going to destroy all of these dangers that exist in this world, all of these traps and all of these snares. One day he's going to return and he's going to remove them all. In the meantime, they are there. And there are many. And they are hidden. And, and we do not see them with our eyes but he does. 
He sees the snares. He sees the traps. And the author of Hebrews so beautifully tells us that we have a high priest who understands exactly what it's like to walk in the steps in which we walk here on this earth, this corrupted, fallen world. He has done it. He has been there before. He knows the way. And he beckons us to follow him. And so in chapter 12, the author of Hebrews writes this, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And that is what I want to close with this morning and with this series on 141 and exhort you to again fix your eyes upon Jesus. The lions are there. But he knows the way through. He's been there. He's been through. And if you will fix your eyes upon him, if you will lean not on your own understanding, if you will acknowledge him, that is, you will honor him as being your God and Savior in everything that you do. If you will pursue him in prayer and pursue that intimate relationship with him, then your eyes will be fixed upon him and he will guide your steps through. And he will do so faithfully and without end until the day he either returns or he calls you to his side to the place which he has been preparing for you. Father God, may that be our commitment this morning and for all of the mornings which you give us, that we will fix our eyes upon you, upon your Son, our High Priest. Father God, that we will cry out for your presence, that we will seek that intimacy which you desire to have with us, for which you created us to enjoy. That you will give to us friends who love us so much, Lord, that they, they are willing to risk our friendship to intercede when we're going wrong. Father God, that you will be vindicated and you will be glorified and that soon, very soon, all the world will recognize your Son for who he is, the Lord. And Father God, as we await that day, we pray for your protection. We take refuge in you, confident that you do not lead us defenseless, but that you will guide us and protect us from the traps and the snares which Satan would lay before us. Oh, may he be defeated in our daily life, and may you be honored and glorified and vindicated as our Savior and our Lord, the God of the universe. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Chapel Messages podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit emmaus.edu slash partner.